You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. I wonder how many of you guys have done this. Gone to the store with the intention to get something and have come back with something entirely different than you expected. Confessions are starting to come in. (laughs) Sometimes to the point where you actually get back home and you realize, I actually didn't get the thing I was intending to get. Oh, sometimes you did. I'm imagining there's probably, for those of you who are couples, come back and there's some sort of conversation that takes place, a a bit of explanation, shall we say defense, something along the lines of, but it was such a good deal. Uh, It was on sale. Uh, We've never tried this. This past week, late at night, I said late at night just because, you know, you're trying to time your shopping patterns in Miami to when the stores can perhaps sometimes be the least crowded. I went to Walmart to get bike tires. Needed to get two tubes for two bikes in my garage that had flats. And I came home with birthday cake Oreos (laughs) and these thin mint Oreos. Now, if you know me, as my wife does, no surprise there. Uh, Somehow, I'm always finding a way to bring home Oreos. Not just any Oreos. I'm a bit of an Oreo snob. I prefer the birthday cake Oreos. But I also wanted to try these thin mint Oreos. In my opinion, for those of you who've never had Girl Scout cookies, or those who have and like the mint-flavored ones, the those are kind of a seasonal. You can only get those once a year. And I got to wait for the Girl Scouts to show up to offer that at some grocery store. And it turns out Oreo knows my needs. And so they have provided this thin mint. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because it's not just an Oreo with mint inside. That cookie to cream ratio is off. You got to get the thin mint ones to get the right Taste of that mint flavor. At least this was my evangelistic appeal to my wife to justify when I came home of why I needed to have these Oreos. And she should try to have them as well. <laughs> the idea of going to a destination with one intention in mind, only to find out while there something entirely different takes place, is not uncommon. Not just in shopping, but just overall in experiences. Some of you perhaps came to this destination this morning with one thought in mind and will leave here with a totally different experience than you expected. I hope that, by the way, is a good experience. What we're going to see this morning in the scriptures is that very story unfold before our eyes and our ears. As we see a person who came to a destination with one goal in mind and left with not just something different, but their entire life changed. And to see that, I want you to look at it for yourself in the 
book of John, John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is our text for this morning. It's a longer section, but we need to see the entire section. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we have those for free for you if you don't want one to keep. There's probably some in the back of pew in front of you, but if not, there's some for you, uh, one for you to take, for you to take rather, at the Welcome Center. But if nothing else, you could just listen as I read it to you, or feel free to look over the shoulder of someone seated next to you, and they'd be glad to share. John chapter 4, John writes the following, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when, ne when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. The title for our message this morning is Jesus, All That You Needed and Nothing You Expected. All That You Needed and Nothing You Expected. To summarize this text for us, I'll tell you the following. The humble, loving, and compassionate Savior knows all your sins and offers you forgiveness. What's happening here in the story perhaps takes a little bit of an orientation or parachuting into the Gospel of John. Jesus has just had an interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is another Jewish leader. He is another person of the Jewish scriptures as well as he knew them to be. And he has this conversation with Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 1 and following. But now, because of Jesus' popularity in the southern region of Israel, and that being a premeditated sort of problem with his prominence being known, he is now going to relocate to the northern part of Israel, to Galilee. 
The problem is, is that this land in between is called Samaria. And this is where we take us to the first part of our text this morning. The contact with the Savior. The contact with the Savior. Jesus is moving from the southern to the northern region, but he's going through an area of Samaria. Now, I realize for most people, if not every person in this room, the significance of this location, both in its place and its people, is largely, if not entirely, unknown to any of you. So let me, if I can, try to summarize it for you briefly. After David, the military ruler of all of Israel, died and his kingdom was taken over by Solomon, after Solomon's death, David's son's death, the kingdom was eventually split, northern and southern. The northern part was the sort of ten tribes of Israel, and that area ended up becoming overwhelmed, and that king, King Omri, renamed that area Samaria. And what ends up happening is the Assyrians eventually come in, this outside other group of people, and basically overrun this northern part of Israel. And they drag a lot of the Jewish people off into captivity, but they leave some behind. But in place of the people that they've dragged off, they actually now take other people from other lands that they have occupied, having kidnapped them and relocated them in this massive relocation assignment, and they take people from other nations and they put them in this northern part of Israel. So now, you have Israelites living with non-Israelites day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Guess what ends up happening? They do business together. They live next to each other. They meet each other's kids, and their kids start dating, and they get married. And they have kids, and those kids have kids. And now these people in this area of the nation are not known as being Israelites. There's something else. They have Israelite blood in their background and their life, but they're, but they're a mixed blood, if you could say it like that. And so what happens happening later on is that when finally the Israelites are released out of captivity under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back, and all of now the Israelites who have come back are now mad at these Jewish mixed people for having compromise. And they want nothing to do with them. To make matters worse, this group of Samaritans don't believe in all of the Bible for themselves. They just believe in the first five books of it, known as the Torah. So the prophets and the writings, they don't think it's from God. To make matters worse, in about 400 AD, they build their own temple. Not like one in Jerusalem, but a different one on Mount Gerizim. And they build their own temple there. So you've got a riddled history. Jews did not like Samaritans. Samaritans did not like Jews. But they would interact with each other as the Jews would walk by their place of living. And now, here is Jesus with his disciples going from southern Israel to northern Israel on what is essentially a three-day walk to get from point A to point B. And he's walking through this part of the land. And it says it's the sixth hour. Now, sixth hour based on Jewish calendar of timing, starting at 6 a.m. for sunrise to sunset, means this is about high noon. 
And he comes to a well, and he's thirsty. And his disciples are going to go to a shop to get some food and bring it back. So here's Jesus at the well by himself, or initially, and lo and behold, who shows up? A woman. Now, just to explain this to you, women do not go to the well alone for safety's sake, and they don't go in the middle of the day. They go in the morning or they go at night. Here is a woman in the middle of the day. By her very presence being there at that place at that time, she's already associated as being a scandalized woman. Something's wrong with who she is. Not only the fact that she's a Samaritan woman by way of ethnic association, but she's there in the middle of the day. And she has this interaction with Jesus. But what she doesn't know is that she's about to have an appointment with divine destiny. And this is why she basically asked the question as he talks to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman, verse nine, says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. This is a problem that even she can't seemingly solve. Just to understand the significance of this, this would have been a sort of a scandalized conversation, if you will. This idea of them interacting in conversation. The significance here is what it is that he is actually saying. Now, when you read that term as he makes that request, give me a drink, in the modern English translation, that might sound insensible, like, wow, he sounds demanding. Give me a drink. What's being lost in your perhaps modern sensibilities is that according to social customs, a Jewish man would not converse with a woman in public. Add to that, he is asking a Samaritan woman to help him. Furthermore, as a rabbi, as a teacher, he would have not had any conversations, at least by traditional associations, of what would be appropriate for rabbis with women of a bad reputation. And yet, Jesus is having a conversation. And what's significant here is to just sort of recognize the reality not only Jesus' humanity, not that not be lost in you, he is thirsty. He is weary. But also, as we're about to see, his divinity, his humanity and his deity in the same text unfolding before our eyes and even becoming increasingly clear to her. But I want you to recognize in this sort of first kind of act, if you will, of the text of the contact with the Savior is that Jesus is willing to do something that very few others would be willing to do. He's willing to be scandalized in order to evangelize. He wants to tell her the good news. In fact, just to let this be lost in you, there's basically two things happening when John's writing here. He's basically having a conversation with the readers that can more likely identify with the woman at the well than God would have nothing to do with them. And he's having a conversation with the readers of the Gospel of John through the personalities of the disciples who are asking the question, Jesus, what are you doing with her? That same audience is actually sitting here in this room this morning. Some of you can identify more with the woman at the well thinking, God would have nothing to do with me if he knew me. 
And those of you can have more to do and identify with the disciples to go, God, what are you doing over there? Do you not see what I see? Do you not know what I know? I'm confused by your interaction with these people, this person. We've got these sort of parallel stories happening at the same time, and it's just densely loaded with so much for us to learn. But in this first vignette of understanding of John chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, we see again in just verse 9 the significance of this. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Here's something to reflect on. When you are more worried about your reputation than you are someone else's salvation, you're no longer acting like your Savior. When you are more worried about your reputation than you are someone else's salvation, you are no longer acting like your Savior. I think the disciples greatly appreciated Jesus' compassion. I mean, Peter of all people, right? Jesus saved Peter's mom's life. I'm sure Peter's like, I'm so thankful that you are such a loving Savior. And like Andrew and John are like, I'm so thankful for who you are. But there's obviously kind of like small print. Like, okay, Jesus, obviously there's some people that are kind of outside the boundaries of your love. And I know that you feel that way, God, and I kind of feel that way too. And so understandably, I feel a sense of parameters and perimeters by which I will kind of confine myself of comfort or convenience or my own sort of self-assessing consideration. And God is like, I'm tearing down all those barriers of understanding. And the question is, have those barriers been torn down in your own thinking? Sometimes the barriers are not actually what you think of others. It's what others think of you that you're worried about. We've talked about this before. We have to keep returning back to it again. Are we willing, for those of us who profess to be Christians, are we willing to be thought of as fools for Christ so that others might know of Christ? I mean, just giving up a reputation, respectable, likable, pretty, funny, humorous, successful. Are you willing to give up a reputation in order that you might overcome that obstacle preventing you from getting to be honest with them about their need for the Savior in order that they might come to know the Savior and maybe in exchange for them coming to know that you love the Savior and that they should know the Savior too and love him therefore, you might lose that friendship. You're not trying to. Or you might lose the friendship of others who think that you should not keep company with such people. Verses 1 to 9, the contact with the Savior. But then look at verses 10 to 27 again. This is now the contrast with the Savior. Look into this conversation about water. Jesus has started with something tangible, something necessary, a physical need. Give me a drink. He identifies with that. He is making a request of that. He is dignifying the reality of that. I say this because later on when the, rabbi, when the disciples are talking about food and he speaks about food is doing the will of the Father, God, Jesus is not saying, well, listen, you should not be eating or drinking anything. He is making a very request himself for something to sustain him. But what he gets into here in verse 10 and following is this contrast of life that we see and live for and life that we need and should live for. This 
liquid water, if you will, versus living water. And the Apostle John here is applying the themes of the Old Testament to Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope it's not lost in you already. The very scripture that was read to us, Tara, Isaiah 55, the song of Isaiah that we sung, come to me, sing, O barren land, I will give you water that you will never thirst again. This is a theme throughout the scriptures, and Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He is saying He is describing the reality of this. In verses 13 through 14, he's talking about his revelation. Liquid water must be drunk often, but living water becomes an eternal, perpetual spring from within. Now, understandably, she's confused. I mean, look at what she says in verses 11 and 12. Sir, you've got no no rope. You've got nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. She's confused. She's like, wait a minute, you're asking for a drink, but then you're offering a drink. How are you going to offer me a drink? You've got nothing to like lower the rope of the bucket. Like, how are you going to give me water? So she is initially only thinking with what she can see and what she's defaulted to understanding. So Jesus shows her and teaches her something more. In verse 10, he speaks about living water. And she says, I would want this water, verse 15 but she still doesn't get it. So Jesus redirects the conversation to the point out her need, what he is really offering. Really offering. And he gets into this conversation about worship, but notice how he gets there. It's almost like a radical subject change. Like we're talking about water, then we're talking about men. You're like, wait, what just happened? What, 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 uh, we just got really personal really fast. Because what Jesus says is basically a statement that's exposing why she's at the well at noon. Go ahead and give me your husband. Bring your husband here. He is not saying, I'm done talking with the woman. Let me talk to men. It's not all what's happening here. He's making a statement in kind of typical rabbinical fashion to get to another statement that he is going to have her make and observe herself. And she says, sir, I, I have no husband. The divinity is displaying itself here. We've seen his humanity. He is thirsty. Now the divinity is exposing itself with his omniscience, what he knows. He says, I know. I know. I know that you've had one, two, three, four, five husbands. How does he know this? He just met her for the first time. Then he says, oh, and I also know that this other man, six men you're worth, with right now, is not even your husband. Sidebar, Jesus does not think living with somebody constitutes a marriage. She has nowhere to hide now. We have gone from discussions of water to discussions of morality and ethics and being exposed But what he does here is he basically points her to the reality of her greatest need by pointing not to her thirst physically, 
but to her thirst spiritually that she keeps trying to satisfy relationally. And no matter what she does to accomplish that, it's not being fulfilled. Friends, this is a point where you have to ask yourself the same question. And quite honestly, for a lot of us who are Christians, this is sometimes a temptation we return back to. Jeremiah, the prophet, chapter 2, verse 13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I can hold no water. Friends, listen to me. This is as true today in 2022 in Miami as it was thousands of years ago in Israel. People repeatedly make the same foolish mistakes. They look for the things of this world to satisfy their thirst, only to find themselves but for a time satisfied, but then relentlessly wanting more to quench that thirst. No matter what they do, no matter what relationship they have, no matter where they go, it will not satisfy. Don't take it from me. Take it from the Samaritan woman at the well. So she realizes they're getting into some, no pun intended, deep waters of understanding. I mean, she feels like, man, we just went from like, hi, what's your name? To like, I think we're having a small group together. I mean, like, I feel like I know you better and you know me better than people around me know. So then she's like, with this revelation, she's like, sir, as you can see there in verse, 20, uh, verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like, how else would you know these things? So she's like, since so you're a prophet, I've got some questions. She wants to know about location, location of worship. Where should we worship? She wants to know about geographic location for where God is most pleased. Jesus tells her the answer. Ultimately, climaxing in verse 23, this ultimate reality of what he says in its fullness, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, this is like mind-blowing. Why? Because Jesus is essentially saying, listen, it's not about where you are physically. It's about where you are spiritually in relationship to God. This same mistake is still made today. That I am right with God if I go to a place and if I kind of check my attendance book at a location and if I wear the right clothes or do the right things or have the right posture or say the right things that God is somehow pleased. He's like, okay, note that, correct? Thank you for that. We'll put that in the log book. You're going to be good for, I don't know, maybe next week. And so we're about geographic placement. That's not what's happening in the text. Jesus, in fact, says something that's very provocative because he says, you have to worship God in spirit and truth. This is not spirit referencing to the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit comes later on in John chapter 7 in reference to the, whole, into the living water. This is a reference to a correction that they would have had to have sort of expunged to remove from their thinking, which is God is not physical. You can't make like wooden idols. Hey, carve an idol, put him there, go there, see him there, offer him offerings there, and then that pleases God there. Jesus says, no, God is spirit. And to worship him, you have to worship him in spirit. What does this mean to worship God in spirit? It's not simply an external conformity to religious rituals and places, but an inward reality with the proper heart attitude. But he didn't just say in spirit, he says in spirit and truth, referring to the worship of God consistent with the scriptures focused on Jesus. Told you it was dense. There's so much stuff going on here. And you can see it. The woman says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I mean, friends, we've already had like 10 mic drops. I don't know what this is. I don't know this is like the soundboard drop. I mean, this is like, this is it. It's like the curtain has been slowly been pulled open, and then boom, it's finally revealed. Jesus says, I'm him. I'm him. Which takes us to this third part here, the conversion of the sinner. The conversion. This is where things bring the disciples back into the conversation. Basically, verse 27, the disciples show up and are like, uh, uh, you, you want to tell him? I'm not telling him. You want to tell him who he's talking to? I, I'm not touching that. With a 10-foot pole. Like, uh, Jesus, uh, lunchtime, over here, sandwiches, over here, with our non-bacon ham sandwiches over here. We want to maintain ritual cleanness over here, Jesus. I don't think he has a clue who he's talking to. You really want to think that about Jesus? So their conversation with Jesus is, uh, food time is here. Meanwhile, while that conversation happens, look what the woman does. Verse 28. The woman left her water jar. John gives us that detail to show a greater priority that now came to her. She had gone from sustaining daily water to quench her thirst to now having living water that would satisfy her soul, and her priority had changed. So she goes into town. Meanwhile, verse 31, disciples are having a conversation, and the conversation is a pretty radical conversation. Because you have things like Jesus saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And you could just imagine some of the disciples like, I told you not to say anything. He was going to Jesus juke you. I'm just telling you, it was going to happen. And then he gets into a conversation about the need for harvest, for, for workers. And he says, look there, the fields are white for harvest, verse 35. 
or verse 34, already the one who reaps. And then he gets into a whole separate lesson on it doesn't matter what work you play in the harvest, it just matters that you're a part of it. Some are planting, some are harvesting, they're all sharing in it together. This is why as local churches, we're so thankful that God gives other faithful local churches to be about the harvest. We're not territorial, we're not small-minded, we're thankful wherever the name of Jesus Christ is being preached unapologetically and clearly. And while we pray for the churches by name and want to plant more churches, because God's love for Miami is seen in a lot more than just Grace Church's expression of it, we're about the labor, about the labor and sending out laborers into the harvest. No matter where they go, we want people to go and to bring that which takes us right back into the storyline to illustrate the point that the need is so great. Now the revival starts coming. This isn't an altar call. This is a city call. Verse 39, Samaritans came from the town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And then after they spent a couple days with him in verse 41, many more believed of his word. And then in verse 42, it was no longer the testimony they heard from the woman. It was their own seeing, their own believing. And then here's the key. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, this phrase. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What does this mean? This means it does not matter what ethnicity you have, what religious background you have or don't have, no matter what you've done, Jesus' offer of salvation is to anyone and everyone who will come and drink of the living water. There is no discrimination at the cross. It is an equal opportunity, invitation, to respond to the invitation and believe in Christ. There are some of you here who think, if God knew what I have done, I think I would be the small print on what he's offering. Friends, don't listen to me. Take it from the woman at the well who's like, listen, I have lived a life of sexual scandal, of relational rejection, of mistreatment by other men, of being shunned and rejected by my family, of repeatedly repeatedly returning back to my sin that I swore I would never do before. And Jesus says, I know you, I see you, and I'm offering to forgive you by acknowledging, you acknowledging that you're a sinner who needs a savior, that you can't quench your own thirst, only I, God, can do that. It's a remarkably profound lesson the humble, loving, and compassionate Savior knows all your sins and offers you forgiveness. To others of you who are Christians, please do not miss the lessons Jesus is teaching his disciples. Lessons like, who around you would you otherwise miss or skip that God is sending you to to bring the good news of Jesus to. Lessons like you understand that there is something so satisfying to know that you're doing the will of the Father. Lessons like the reality that God is indeed using all kinds of means and all kinds of people and places, as Paul later said in 1 Corinthians, one man waters, 
One man plants, another man works, but God causes the growth. Salvation is from the Lord and by the Lord, but you and I are the means by which it takes place. God has given us a ripe mission field here in Miami to love those hurting, broken, otherwise unloved, to show them the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're not at a physical well, but this morning we've been sitting at a spiritual well offering water to whoever would drink. And to those of you who have, to learn from the Samaritan woman who would go tell others, we have found the Savior. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.